How many of you in here have ever been um, hurt or sinned against? I'm not asking for raising hands because it's everybody, right? <laughs> everybody in here has been hurt or sinned against. Um, but let me flip it uh, the other way. How many in here have ever hurt somebody else or sinned against them? It's everybody again, right? It's everybody. And relationships are hard. They're difficult. They're painful. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a challenge that we have. And sometimes when uh, we sin against somebody else, it's nuanced and it's complex. And I'm not making an excuse, but it's been a long week. And this is why I did it. I'm not trying to justify it, but there's reasons. But when somebody sins against you, it's like, how could anyone ever do that? Right? We have this just different standard for somebody else. And we're in these relationships that we feel um, sin from other people. We feel the effects of our sin towards them. And relationships are hard that we're called to. And then when you look into Scripture, um, there are very high standards for the type of relationships we should have. We could go to a ton of verses, but let me just point out a few. This is in Romans 12. He says, Repay no one evil for evil. Uh, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a high standard. Like I'm supposed to, as, as much as it is possible, he's saying it's not always possible, but as much as it's up to you, you should live at peace with all people. You should try to get along with all people. That's, that's a high standard, especially if you know some of those people, or you are some of those people. Here, this is in Proverbs 19. He says, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Overlook an offense? That's something we're called to do. I mean, that's hard to do when the offense happens to you. I don't want to overlook it. I want to deal with it. I, we need justice. We need, to, we need to deal with this. But he's saying, no, it's to your glory. Just let it go. Like, overlook it. Don't make a big deal about it. You don't have to make a big deal about everything. He's saying, in your relationships, hey, as much as possible, live at peace with people. And it's to your glory when you overlook an offense. There is sin happening between these relationships, and we need to do the best we can to get along with, with one another. Um, but even beyond one another, there's a, uh, this isn't on the screen. I just thought of it. You know this passage, but I'm close to it, so I'll just read it to you. This is in Matthew 5. Uh, Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Really? That's a high standard. That's a high calling to the Christian. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's like, okay, you love people that love you. Congratulations. You're like everybody else. <laughs> but I didn't call you to be like everybody else. I called you to be like your heavenly father. So I want you to love even your enemies. That's a high standard. That's a high calling. I don't know how many of you in here think or feel like you have enemies. Like you got an arch nemesis. Anybody in here? Like, I don't know, maybe it's your neighbor. They don't spray for dandelions. You hate them. I don't know what's going on. But not too many of you feel like we have enemies. Like, I don't know if I have enemies. But we have people who maybe treat us with enmity, and sometimes those are the people closest to us. Could be your spouse. Could be your kids. Could be your parents. Could be your best friends. Like, in those moments, they're not your enemies, but they're acting like it. He's saying love should extend to them. In fact, uh, Paul gives uh, a definition of love. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, you ever been at a wedding where they read from 1 Corinthians 13? 
Was it in your wedding? Anybody? Is anybody married here? Okay. <laughs> it's a popular verse at, at, at weddings. Uh, it talks about the importance of love. And Paul's saying, listen, you can, you can have faith to move mountains. You could speak in the tongues of angels. But if you don't love, it's nothing. Like nothing. Like love is the highest thing. He goes into this definition that love is patient. Love is kind. Um, and he, says, he goes on. He says, it doesn't keep record of wrongs. Love bears all things. It endures all things. And in, in the hardship of relationship, he says, love withstands it. It puts up with it. It bears it. It endures it. But it can often seem like we have very fragile relationships that can't withstand conflict. Like, I like this relationship. It's good. But if I say something wrong or if you say something wrong, it's done. It's over. Like, it, it, it can just break really easy. So we, we stay on the surface and we don't, we don't go deep because it, it might... It might break, or if we do have conflict, I'll just move on to somebody else, and I'll get different friends, and I don't really talk to you anymore. We don't really hang out anymore because you said this, and it was never really dealt with. We run. If there is challenge or there's hurt, we run. And listen, we, we can sit in our armchair, watch TV, and critique, cancel culture. We see in our, in our society all we want, but we practice it in our relationships. Like, if you wrong me, then you're done. I write you off, and we kind of move on. It's not what we're called to. Or we hold on to anger which Paul warns us about. It turns into bitterness. Gives the devil a foothold. Or we want everybody to know when we've been wronged. We want their sympathy. We want their support. We want them to know who wronged us. It's not biblical. Or this is a popular one. We let other people's sin justify our sin. I have permission to talk to them that way because they talk to me this way. I have permission. It's okay for me to treat them this way because that's what they did to me. And we think their sin justifies our sin. That's just not biblical. That's not what Christ is calling us to when he says, love your enemies. Let's just be honest. Even though forgiveness is a core element in the gospel we believe in, we can be pretty bad forgivers. We can be pretty bad forgivers. Like we don't want to extend it. We want forgiveness for ourselves, but we want justice you know, for other people. We don't want to extend forgiveness. Or if we do extend forgiveness, it's pathetic. Like it's kind of wrapped in this half-hearted apology. Like, I'm sorry if I offended you. It wasn't my intent. Like there's a possibility I didn't even offend you. And if I did, there's a possibility that it's probably your fault. And it wasn't my intentions. My intentions are always pure, right? And then the forgiveness back is like, oh, I totally forgive you. I just would never like to see or talk to you again. (laughs) That's not forgiveness. That's, that's how it flushes itself out practically in our relationships, and it's not what we're called to. But listen to me, guys. Struggling with unforgiveness can be one of the most dangerous threats to our own spiritual formation, to the unity of the church, and to the witness we have with others. If you struggle with unforgiveness, you should treat that like the threat that it is. It will give the devil a foothold in your life and grow bitterness in your heart. It'll break up God's family and unity and cause division within this church. And it'll be a poor reflection to the world about the grace we've received and the forgiveness we've received. But on the other hand, if we're good at forgiving others, it's a sign of good spiritual health. It strengthens unity in the church and it shows the world a picture of the grace we've received. So how do we do this better? How do you become a better forgiver? How do we become better at forgiveness? How do we grow in this? And everyone is pro-forgiveness, right? At least for ourselves. Or in theory. We're pro-forgiveness, right? And then we get hurt and it's, it's challenged. But we got to do this better. Just we got to do this better. Our relationships won't survive if we don't figure this out. 
you will eventually write everybody off until you're alone in your own self-righteousness. Or you're just going to move around in your relationships. And, and it's, there's no stability in it. But that's not the Christian family that we're called to. We have to do this better. So as Christians, how do we both take sin seriously and take forgiveness seriously? Like both. How do we take sin seriously and take forgiveness seriously? Because sometimes we, we miss this and we want to take forgiveness seriously. And the way we approach sin is like, don't worry about it. No big deal. No big deal. Everybody sins. No big deal. It is a big deal. It offends a holy God. It hurts people. It does damage. Sin is a big deal. And forgiveness is a big deal. And both of those have to be big deals in our life. So how do we both take sin serious and forgiveness seriously? Let's tackle this. All right, when I say forgiveness, let me give just a a definition so we know what we're talking about. When I say forgiveness, I'm talking about um, absorbing the hurt, choosing not to retaliate, and treating that person better than they deserve. That's what we mean when we say forgiveness. Uh, absorbing the hurt. Like God didn't just look at our sin and be like, ah, I forgive you. No, he went to the cross. He absorbed, he took the hurt, he took the pain. And when we forgive somebody, it hurts. That offense is real. We absorb it. We choose to eat it, right? We absorb the hurt, we choose not to retaliate, and we treat that person better than they deserve. And that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. But our soul requires it. We're in need of it. And your, your relationships, your relationships are going to demand it. Now, your marriage, your friendships, relationships with your kids, your parents, relationships at work with your friends, all of your relationships will demand it. It will require it. So how do we become better forgivers? Got your Bibles? Open up to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're going to be primarily in Matthew 18. We'll go to one other passage, but we're going to camp out here in Matthew 18. And we're going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, But I want to get a running start into this parable because what he talks about before he goes into this parable is important to understand and give some context. We're actually going to start in verse 15. The parable starts down in verse 23, but we're going to start in verse 15. You guys ready? All right, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, he's talking about confronting sin. uh, And he's saying, listen, go to your brother. Don't go to like five other people and talk about it. And just be like, I'm just looking for wisdom. But no, you're spreading gossip. Like go to your brother alone and confront your brother. It's important to address sin. Like if, you're, if you've been sinned against or somebody said something that hurt you, you should go and say, hey, you said that, that hurt me. You did this. I don't think this is right. You're making these choices. I'm concerned about you. You should do that. Like this is what we're called to do. And go privately, one-on-one, and have that conversation. Now, this is a command of what we're called to do. You need to take sin seriously. You need to address it. But I want to address it from the other end. Not you going to somebody to call them out, but how should you respond if somebody comes to you and calls you out? Because this is important. And I learned because I did it poorly. And somebody called me out on how I didn't receive rebuke well, so I had a chance to improve right away, like in the same afternoon. Uh, <clears throat> so this was you know, super helpful. Anytime somebody comes to you to challenge you on something, just thank them. We tend to get in these like defensive modes, like, well, that's not what I meant, or you took it wrong, or this is why, or you need, like, we just get in these defensive modes. Don't. One, it takes a lot of courage to do that to somebody, and they're doing it because they care about you, 
He's saying, you don't have to agree with them. Just thank them and say, I'm going to pray about that and search my heart. I might talk to some other people, see if they see that in me as well. Like, just receive it with humility. If somebody comes and does it, because they're being biblical, right? We're, we're called to do this. So the way that you receive that is just, you're, you're not, you don't have to agree with them. You may not agree with them, but the way you receive that is like, I got to at least reflect on that because maybe you see something I don't see right now. And, and I want to be godly. So he's, he's saying, hey, go and confront your brother. Take sin seriously. But he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Like you're going to say, hey, it ain't, it ain't just me. Like we all see that. Other people see this in you. There, there's, there's witnesses to this. There, there's, there's higher accountability. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Basically treat them like an unbeliever because they're acting like an unbeliever. Like we've confronted you with your sin. You don't acknowledge your sin. You don't repent of your sin. You're acting like an unbeliever. So we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. That's what the passage is talking about. Now, uh, the point is, there's an escalating confronting of sin. You go one-on-one, it doesn't work. You go with some friends, it doesn't work. You take it to the church. Like it's, There's an escalating confronting of sin. And people hate these verses. People hate these verses. How could you do this? This sounds so judgmental. This is so unchristian. Except it's in the Bible. It's, it's super Christian. It may not fit in your box of a secularized, nice Christianity... But it's real Christianity. It's really in the Bible. It's really clear. We hate these verses. But church, this is true because holiness matters. Like our personal holiness matters. And this is loving. It is loving to go and call somebody to what God has called them to. It is loving to confront people. It is loving to challenge people. But hear me now. If we are going to be a church that takes sin seriously then we need to be a church that takes forgiveness seriously. If we're going to be a church, if we're going to be a group of people that takes sin seriously, then we need to be a group of people that takes forgiveness seriously. Because out of this teaching goes into uh, a question that Peter asked. He says this, verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or seven times 70. And you're like, okay, the context makes sense of that question. Peter listens to this teaching. I'm like, okay, I got to confront my brother. He repents. I win him. I got to confront my brother. Like, how often do I got to do that? Like, if I go and I say, hey, you stole from me. That was wrong. And he's like, yeah, caught me. Sorry. Okay. But then he does it again tomorrow. And he's like, yep. Yeah, I'm like, how, how often do I got to play this out? And he makes a suggestion seven times. Now, the going rate, according to religious leaders at this time, was three. Like, it's three strikes, you're out policy. Like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, forgive you there. Forgive you then. Okay, no more. Like, third time, like, you're done. You don't really mean it. But Peter recommends, he, like, goes over double. Like, how about seven times? Look how gracious I am, right? He's pretty pumped about this. But Jesus says, I didn't say to you seven times, 70 times seven. It's like, so 490 times? You're like, he's quick on the math. No, I got a calculator up this weekend and did that. <laughs> but no, it's not about a number. That's what he's saying. The point is like, this is, the true forgiveness doesn't keep track. 
It's, it's not about a limit. It's about an extravagance. And it should go beyond the world's ex, uh, expectations. Like our forgiveness, like our call to holiness is a little bit different, right? It's a little bit extreme, but also our forgiveness is extreme. Like you, you should, you should, it's a heart issue. So Jesus is like, okay, I don't think you're getting this. If you're asking this question of how many times do I have to forgive somebody, you're missing something here. So let me tell you a story. And Jesus tells them this story. You go to verse 23, he says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that may not mean much to you when we read past this, but 10,000 talents. One talent was worth about 6,000 denarii, which was equivalent to about 20 years of labor for a common laborer. So if one talent is worth 20 years of labor... How many, you're like, is this story problems, is this math problem? How many years of labor is 10,000 talents worth? 200,000 years of labor. That's what he owed him. It's this astronomical number. It's like if the average income today was $50,000, you're in $10 billion of debt. That's what he's saying. And it's supposed to be astronomical. Like there's this is like no way he could ever pay this amount off. But this is what he owes the king. And since he could not pay, which everybody listening would be like, yeah, duh. Uh, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and a payment to be made. So if you can't pay me what you owe me, you're going to at least pay me something. That's how it worked. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Really? Is that why you just need more time? Like 200,000 more years? Do you really think you could pay this off? It's interesting that he asked for patience and not mercy. You don't need patience. Like time is not the problem. You are never going to be able to pay this back. You don't need patience. You need mercy. But he doesn't ask for mercy. He asks for patience. Like just Just give me some more time. And here's the king's response. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Like a zillion dollar debt. He's just like, done. I I forgive your freedom, done. Facing being sold, nope, you're free. This is an extravagant forgiveness, not an extension on his loan, not a deduction or reduction of it, like let's make it more manageable. Just forgiveness radical forgiveness. So if you're listening to this story and you hear like, this man is in trouble. One, there's no way he could ever accumulate that much debt. So he's making a a point on purpose, but it's like, he's in trouble. There's no way he could ever pay it back. And he's forgiven. This astronomical amount, he's forgiven. And, And here's the twist or the turn in the story. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. Sound familiar? And I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now you get this drastic contrast of like you you owed like a zillion dollars that you could never pay and the king was gracious, had mercy upon you and forgave your debt. You go out, you run into a guy that owes you like 50 bucks. 
and, and you refuse, like you go MMA on him, choke hold him, like tap him out, you know, send him to jail. Like it's extravagant on purpose. Like he's making this big contrast, how amazing you were forgiven and how poorly you treat people. Like that's the point. Like that's, he's, he's making these extremes on purpose to make a point. He's, he's saying, like, how, how, how crazy is this response? And you wonder why. Like, why did that guy act like that? Is he just a jerk? Did he really think he could pay off the king? Like, I need to go collect all the money I can and make, start making payments and not understand forgiveness? Why does he act like this? Well, we don't know his motive, but that's not the point. It's, it's a parable. It's a made-up story uh, to make a point. And the point is that he is not treating other people the way he was treated. This is, this is what Jesus is pointing out to us. Uh, look, at, um, look at verse 31. It says, When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. You should be. This is a shocking story. Everybody listening is shocked. The people in the story, like this, does, his behavior doesn't make sense. That's the point. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now, that word reported um, is a strong verb that means to explain in detail. So these fellow servants who witnessed his forgiveness and now witness his lack of forgiveness or showing mercy to others, they saw it all. And they go back to the king and they report or they explain in detail what just went down. Like, king, you are not going to believe what just happened. You know that dude that you just forgave like a zillion dollars to? Never seen that. That was awesome, right? That's incredible. Well, we just saw him down in the courtyard, right? He ran into somebody that owed him some money, and it was a lot less money than you forgave, like a lot less money. And it's like he put him in a chokehold, like full Nelsoned him, kicked him, sent him to jail. Like they're explaining in detail all that's going down. And the king is like, what do you just tell me? Are you kidding me? Like the, the, the king is a bit enraged. Look at verse 32. Then the mas- his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Now this is important. I want you to get this. Did he have the legal right to demand from this guy the money owed him? Yes. Did he have the legal right to put him in jail for not being able to pay the money that was owed him? Yes. And he's called wicked. Wicked. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pled with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? He's doing something legal. He didn't do anything wrong. But he did something very ungodly. And he's called wicked. Let that sink in a little bit wicked then verse 34 he says and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers maybe your translation says torturers until he should pay all his debt is that ever going to happen never he's never going to be able to pay back, back that debt so also his here's how jesus concludes so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart and then he just ends now I'm not Jesus. We're all clear on that. But can you imagine me ending in a sermon like this? Like just kind of saying like, hey, by the way, if you ever do this, God's going to deal with you. Let's pray. Just like, he just like mic dropped and walks away. Like they're not understanding forgiveness. And he's like, well, how often do I have to go? Like seven times? It's like, let me tell you a story, Peter. There's about a king. He goes out and he's like, all right. And if you don't do that way, God have mercy on your soul. Done. He's just out. 
Because there's a weightiness to this. He's like, if you don't get this, you don't get Christianity. Do you, get, do you feel the weight of this now? If you don't get this, you have a different future than the kingdom of God. This is so crucial and essential to, to the heart of what it means to be a believer, to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. It's like, you've you got to get this. He sends them to the jailers or the tormentors. And in this, this story, we see a king, which Jesus compares to God at the end, who both forgives so extravagantly and punishes so ruthlessly. So God takes both sin and forgiveness seriously. And if you don't get that aspect of God, you don't get God. And sometimes we, we like err to one side or the other. We think of God as just this like uh, righteous judge that's ready to kind of stomp down on every sin and injustice and he's going to get you. And you fail to see that this is a God who, who forgives a zillion dollars, who's full of grace and mercy. Or some of you fall in the other ditch. And you think God is just this happy-go-lucky guy that doesn't really care in anything you do. God loves you. You just go, you be you. And you miss that, no, God is a God who will throw you to the tormentors in jail to pay what's owed. He is a righteous God. And both exist. He's a God who takes sin seriously, and he's a God who takes forgiveness seriously, and he's full of grace and mercy. I love the picture that uh, C.S. Lewis does in his Chronicles of Narnia, um, you guys ever read those books or watch the movies? Okay, well, we really got to start at the beginning. <laughs> I'm going to assume you just don't want to raise your hand. So C.S. Lewis wrote these books, uh, widely read, made into movies. Uh, if you haven't read the books, maybe you've seen the movies where they, these kids kind of go into this land of Narnia. And in the story, uh, there's, a, there's a Christ figure who's Aslan. And Aslan is a lion. And Lucy, the little girl, asked Thomas, a character in Narnia, because they're going to see Aslan for help. Uh, and they, they're, they're looking at Aslan, and Lucy says to Thomas, is he safe? And Thomas says, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. <laughs> he eats your face. Now, that's not what C.S. Lewis said. I added that part. But that was implied. It was implied, right? He's like, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. It's God. You look at God like, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a holy, consuming fire. But he's full of grace and mercy. He's good. He's kind. You have to have an appreciation of God. You see in the story a God of compassion and mercy, extravagantly so, who does not tolerate those who do not extend compassion and mercy. And in the last verse, we see the real problem. So back to verse 35, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why does Jesus draw attention to the heart here? Why why does it say that you have to forgive from your heart? Now this guy didn't just have a forgiveness problem. He had a forgiveness problem because he had a heart problem. Because he had a heart problem. You know when you go in for a physical. I had to do this uh, a couple years ago where they uh, put a bunch of stickers on you and then put you on a treadmill and have you run. I don't think this is a good idea. Like, I never normally do this. We should probably not do this now, but uh, the doctor's like, you got to run. And the idea behind the stress test was we have to give your heart a workout to see if it's healthy. Like, so so when when we put your heart under stress, then we can better observe if there's any problems. When you're sinned against, that gives your heart a workout. 
emotionally speaking. And, and when your heart is in a workout in that sense, now we can see, are there any problems? Like, what's, what's going on in your heart? And we can see it more clearly when your heart or your emotions are under stress. You've been sinned against. Okay, what do we learn about your heart in that situation? If there is a lack of forgiveness coming from us, there's a sign that there's a heart problem in us. Why aren't you forgiving? Like, what's blocking that? Like, do you love the wrong things too much? Why aren't you extending forgiveness? Well, it's, it's, it's a heart problem. And Jesus draws attention to the heart at the end because that, that's the issue. Because listen, guys, the king's forgiveness was not just an example to this guy. Like, hey, here's what forgiveness looks like. This, this was a powerful thing that happened to this guy. He was forgiven. His debt was canceled. His freedom was purchased. And everyone here in the story is shocked at the size of the forgiveness that he's, that he's received. But they're also shocked at the lack of impact his forgiveness had on him. That's the shock of the story. Like I, I remember my kids were young. We lived in Manchester, and so we, we'd go to the public pool. Uh, and sometimes over the lunch break, I'd come and join the family at the pool. And there was a time when the little kids would line uh, the side of the pool by the diving board, wanting to get splashed. Uh, and whenever I would go up to the diving board, kids would cheer. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I felt like a mix of emotions because they're clapping for me. And now it's like, this is kind of a passive-aggressive fat joke. And I don't know how to deal with this at the moment, so I splashed them, right? But the twist of the story would be like, if you go up on the diving board, you got this big guy ready to like do a cannonball. You're a kid lined up. You're ready to get wet. And then he just like gracefully swan dives with no splash at all. That's this parable. You're expecting like this, this cannonball of grace just happened in his life. Like, let's feel the waves. Nothing. No impact on this guy at all. That's the shock of the story. There, there's nothing. Someone has forgiven so much. We're all expecting change, but there was a lack of impact on his life. He just got a forgiveness cannonball. Nothing. No splash. So listen, the impact of God's forgiveness to you should produce the waves of forgiveness people feel from you. In fact, grace that flows out of us is evidence of an impact of grace to us. Like when you forgive like that, that's an evidence. Like you've been forgiven. Like you've tasted that, that, that kind of grace. Something's happened to you. So guys, the shock of the story, this is what I want you to get. The shock of the story isn't that he wasn't a forgiving person. The shock of the story is that he wasn't a forgiving person after he had been forgiven so much. That's, that's the shock of the story. I mean, if, if, uh, if you start the story at verse 28, and it's like, hey, guy owns some money, he couldn't pay him, kind of roughed him up a bit, put him in jail. You're like, yeah, okay, what's your point? Like, that's normal, that's expected. The story gets shocking because of after what happened to him or what happened before that. We are expecting a different behavior because of what happened to him. In fact, the key to this parable is in verse 33. Look at that. And should not... You have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Like there, there, there was a new expectation on him because what was done for him. Right? There was a new expectation on him because what was done for him. So here's what you need to know. How God has treated us should shape how you treat others. Or let's put it this way for note takers. Treat others as God has treated you. 
Treat others as God has treated you. And we tend to think, no, treat others as others have treated me. And if this person is mean to me, then I have a right to be mean to them. If they lied to me, I have a right to lie to them. And that's, that's what the world says. I just want to be clear. That's not what the Bible says. That's not, what, that's not how Christians are called to behave. We're not to treat others as others have treated us. We're to treat others as God has treated us. It's a new standard. And the Bible connects our forgiveness of others with God's forgiveness of us. It's in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You've got forgiveness going all around. But what this parable does is it puts an order to that. Like God's forgiveness happens first. I don't forgive others so that God will forgive me. I forgive others because God has forgiven me. He's the forgiving initiator. And we forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because he first loved. And we forgive and we love like that the way that we have been forgiven and loved. By Christ. Think of it like this. Grasping God's forgiveness to us is the key to growing our forgiveness towards others. Grasping God's forgiveness to us is the key to growing our forgiveness towards others. So, have you grasped it? Like, has it sunk in? Do you, do you get how extravagant it is? Has it made an impact in your life? Because you think about it. This guy owed the king like a zillion dollars, and the king forgave him. Do you know what that cost the king? Like a zillion dollars. That's what was owed him. Like 200,000 years of labor. That's what it cost the king to forgive him. The forgiveness to this guy cost the king a lot. Do you know what our forgiveness cost God? The death of his son. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was nailed to a cross and beat and spit upon. So one, how awesome is the grace of God. And two, how shocking would it be if our story, if we weren't impacted and changed by that grace. And what might the Father do to somebody like that? And you've been sinned against, you need to get off your high horse. And you need to understand the debt that was canceled in your account that you could not pay. And sometimes we think, well, if I forgive this person, then that, what that says is what they did was okay and what they did was not okay. Guys, that's not what forgiveness says. That's not what forgiveness says. Forgiveness says not what they did was okay. What forgiveness says is what God has done for me is so amazing. It also extends to you. It speaks about God, not what they have done. So, so this story is about a man who received grace but was not changed by it. Is that your story? Is that your story? Are you someone who knows the gospel but is unchanged by it? If I asked you about grace, if I t- we could talk about Jesus, you can tell me about atonement, you can tell me about justification. You don't show it to anybody. You hold grudges. You're angry. You don't forgive. Like this story had no impact on you practically. Are you holding grudges? Are you withholding forgiveness? Church, listen, we can never detach how God has treated us from how we treat others. You can never detach that. And I love how John puts it in 1 John. He says this. He says, and this commandment, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Does anybody else notice something weird about this passage? And this is his commandment, singular, one commandment. But then he lists two things. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Which one is it? 
Which one is this commandment? You say, this is a singular commandment, but you're telling us two things. Because the point is they're connected. The, believing in Jesus and loving one another go together. Believing in Jesus empowers us to love one another. And if you're unable to love your enemies, forgive people, bear with people, what is it about Jesus that you're not believing? You don't believe that he's a just judge and he can take care of things? Do you not believe that his grace is sufficient? Do you, do you not believe that he's the treasure of life and you've treasured other things? Like, where's your faith breakdown that's flushing itself out in your relationships? But believing in Jesus Christ and loving one another go together. And as Christians, guys, we have to understand this. Our storyline is never just what someone else did to you. Just like this story doesn't start in verse 28. Our story doesn't start with what somebody else owes you, what someone else did to you, or somebody else hurt you. There's more to that story. Stop making it just about that incident, just about that conversation, just about that grievance. There's there's more to the story. There's a a bigger picture to it. Our story as Christians starts back with our debt being forgiven. So practically, this is where it gets to some application. Practically, we need to put the forgiveness we've received from God into the equation of the problems we have with others. I'm going to go a little math, and I'm like the least qualified person to do math, okay? But when it comes practically to dealing with this, we need to put um, the forgiveness we've received from God into the equation of the problem we have with others. And often we don't do that. Here's what we tend to do. Here's the equation. You stole from me, stealing is wrong, or you stole from me plus stealing is wrong, this is the math part, equals what? That's an easy problem. You owe me. Right? You stole from me, plus stealing is wrong, equals you owe me. And is there anything wrong in that equation? Is there anything false in that equation? No. It's just not complete. So, so what if the equation was this? I've stolen from God, plus you've stolen from me, plus stealing is wrong, plus God has forgiven me. What does that equal? How do you add that up? Because that's a completely different equation, but it's a Christian equation. And we have to factor in what God has done for us. So guys, next time, and maybe next time is right now, like maybe you're in the midst of it, but you're in a relational conflict. You have anger that you're holding on to. You have unforgiveness that you're, you're, you're not giving people. What we want to do is before you put somebody in a chokehold, before you demand what you're owed, before you just kind of break off this relationship, I want you to take some time to reflect on how you've sinned against God and how God has forgiven you. And it's super hard to do. Because like right in the moment, it's like, I don't want to think about that. I want to think about this is the issue. This is what they've done to me. This is the conflict we're trying to solve. Like maybe you're in the middle of a fight with your spouse and you're just like, okay, time out. Give me five minutes. I'm going to come into this room and I just want to think. Not, not think about like, what can I say when I get back in the room to win this conflict? Not that. Like, I'm just going to think, okay, how have I sinned against the holy God and what is the grace that he's shown me? And hear me now. That is not going to solve the problem. But it is going to help you deal with the problem like a Christian. And that's the dream. That we would function like Christians. We would act like Christians. We would treat each other like Christians. Like unique flavor of God. Who takes both sin seriously and grace seriously. That we would be a group of people 
who don't just want forgiveness for ourselves, but we would be a group of people who have been so completely changed by forgiveness that we receive that others would feel the impact of the forgiveness on us through us, through the way that we treat them, that we do extend grace, that we do show forgiveness, that we are patient, that we do endure, that we do bear with each other. Because right now, church, we have a world that's in love with justice, right? We see, we demand justice, and the world's lost its love with forgiveness. Because I'll cancel you, and you'll just be due, and I need to separate from you. But as Christians, we should love both, because God loves both. And it's the unique flavor that we have high standards of holiness, and we practice radical forgiveness. That's why every week as a church, we come back to communion. Because you have a debt that you could never pay. And our king stepped in and paid it. And his body was broken for you. And his blood was shed for you. And that was the cost of your freedom and your forgiveness. And then he sends us out. And if you receive this grace, but don't show this grace, may God have mercy on your soul. Let's pray. Father, your love is amazing. Your grace is extravagant. Your mercy is beyond comprehension. Your patience blows my mind. pray that that would show up in our relationships. That how we treat each other would be evidence that we've been loved by you in that way. How we treat each other would be an evidence of how amazing your grace is, how amazing your patience is, how amazing your mercy is. So Father, as we come and remember the cost of our forgiveness in Jesus Christ, don't let us just eat a cracker and drink some juice, impact our heart that we would go and live for you and the grace that we've experienced from you we would show to others. We pray this in your name. Amen.